I don't know if your office has some of those motivational posters. You know, it's like the, the picture of like people climbing a mountain and it just says progress. Or, or it's like an iceberg and it says influence, which I don't know why those go together, but that's something I thought of. Well, there was this weird trend for a period of time where then uh, some people said, you know what, we actually need to correct these. And they started creating demotivational posters where they took the idea and then they kind of made it like a, like, a, like a downward spin off of it. And I was thinking about this and I was looking some of those up and then I ran across uh, these group of people who created this thread of taking some of our sayings, our mantras that we use in everyday life and they said, yeah, but we need to correct these and make them better. So this is where I wanna start this morning. I wanna share a few of those with you. Uh, the first one is they say that the pen is mightier than the sword said nobody after getting stabbed by a sword. Right, like imagine like you're, you're in a battle and like you're like, all right guys, we're gonna hold the front line and you got your sword and you look to the guy on his right, he's like, why are you holding a feather? Sir, this is a quill. I'm going to demoralize them with the power of my words. It's like, okay, this guy's gonna die, let's move on. Uh, this is a good one. They say, practice makes a man perfect because men are just too dumb to get it right the first time. No further comments, let's just move along from this one, go on to the next one. This one was my favorite, they said though, a penny for your thoughts, and you could probably relate to this, but sometimes I think that's a little too much. You ever been there before where you're like, yeah, like, like yeah, I'm not gonna judge you, but man, you really should have kept that, that saying or that thought to yourself. Uh, there's this other saying that we sometimes use, and perhaps you've used it before or heard it before, but it's the saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Anyone familiar with this phrase, ever used it before? Yeah, uh, the actual proper way to understand this verse is to flip it around, because that doesn't really make sense. The, the, the truer rendering of it is you can't eat your cake and have it too. Now that makes sense to me. Now, the origin of this phrase is in the 1500s, the Duke of Norfolk, don't know who that was, talked to some, some guy by the name of Thomas of Cromwell and gave him, and he wrote this as like an encouraging word of some sort. If you are Russian, you would say this a different way. You would say you can't sit on two chairs at once. Clearly, they've never been on an airline in which the middle seat is open, okay? Um, if you're German, they might say something to the extent that you can't t dance at two weddings at the same time. My favorite, though, is how the Albanians put it, and they say you can't swim and not get wet. It's like, man, that's, yeah, that, that makes sense. I get that. Basically, what this phrase and this saying is, is that there are certain choices that you make in life that are mutually exclusive to something else. That you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have it both ways. And I want to plant this thought, this word into your mind. It's this idea of compromise that I think this saying comes. Sometimes compromise isn't an option. And in life and certainly in faith, does compromise have a place? And perhaps what does that look like as we move forward? Or is there a lot of times where they actually should be mutually exclusive or not? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me uh, to the letter of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's our series, Aaron was saying that we've been continuing. We're in week three of seven weeks in this series. Revelation, super easy to find. It's in the back of your Bible. If you're taking notes, you can get those out, grab a pen to follow along. You can follow along on the app. Reminder, the note sheet also has like homework study to take the, uh, the text deeper and help you apply it to your life throughout the week. In week one though, we kind of set the premise and what's happening in these, these letters to these seven churches is Jesus is offering a review. He's looking at these ancient churches in these ancient cities and kind of saying, here's what you're doing good, 
But we really need to adjust this over here, this action, this wave of thinking, this whole direction of life or how you are going about it. And in Revelation chapter one, verse three, that's our memory verse for this series. It kind of gives us the cornerstone of how we are to read and receive these letters to these churches. If you haven't grabbed one of those cards, grab them on your way out at one of our pickup stations. But in Revelation chapter one, verse three offers this. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it, and this is the important part, and take to heart what, to, what is written in it because the time is near. Now the whole letter, the whole book of Revelation was written by this man by the name of John. He was one of the apostles, one of the 12 closest disciples of Jesus. All 11 uh, disciples other than John were martyred. They were killed for their faith. But John was exiled to this island called Patmos and it's off the coast of Spain, I believe it was. And he was left to die. They just said, well, I don't know, we'll we'll kind of uh, just kind of leave you there and let nature take its course. But while he was there, he received a vision from the Holy Spirit, and we call that revelation. But in particular, chapters two and three, he receives this image, this vision of Jesus standing among seven lampstands, which is a representation of the church, to be light in a dark place. And Jesus is addressing them, and John will write these letters, and they will actually go to these cities and to these churches. And so as we study this, we need to keep in mind that revelation isn't just all allegory. It isn't just made up or mythology. This part in particular, that these were real cities, real churches, real Christians receiving real correction. And our our duty is to say, okay, what, what was Jesus saying to them? And perhaps might it be true of us? Because what was true of them could be true of our church today and in a practical instant might be true of your faith personally with God. In every single church, the target was their worship. Satan was going after their worship in different ways because he knows if he can get the church to not worship the one true God or to wholly worship God, then he wins. And he attacks their worship in three different ways. Number one, he tries to divert their worship. And this is where it's like, well, okay, maybe I could get you to love God, but not love people. Let me get you to focus on one aspect of following Jesus, but not everything. Sometimes Satan tries to get them to distort their worship. Let me make something bigger than it is. Let me try to add things in or draw it in. And that's what we're going to see today. And if those both fail, Satan's then next attempt is to get uh, the churches to neglect their worship altogether. That if I can't get you to, to, to divert your worship, if I can't get you to distort your worship, then perhaps what I really need to do is just try to get you to stop altogether. And so today we're going to see as we pick up in Revelation chapter 2 verse 12, the ancient church in Pergamum. Say that three times fast. Pergamum, Pergamum, Pergamum. All right, Pergamum uh, 12, sorry, chapter two, verse 12. I got a little sidetrack. You guys know I'm like ACD, ACDC. No, okay, never mind. All right, moving on. Oh boy. (laughs) Here we go. Word of the Lord, not Eric's words. Uh, Revelation chapter two, verse 12 says to the angel of the Lord wrote to the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp double edged sword. This is important. I know where you live. Creepy, but true. He says where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. Again, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. The other two churches had one thing. They got a few. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. He was taught by Balak 
to entice Israel to sin so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, Jesus says. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give to the person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. This idea of a sword, a double-edged sword, comes up twice in this passage. You see, the person who held a sword in ancient antiquity, it represented political power because a sword was the ability to determine life and death. We will go to war, we will not go to war, capital punishment. And so the person who held the sword, it represents a person particularly of political power or authority. But we also know, perhaps you may be familiar, that scripture is referred to as a sword, the word of the Lord, the word of the spirit of the living God written down for us to receive. Hebrews chapter four says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword because it has the power to pierce both soul and spirit. And so this idea of sword comes up twice. In one instance, he says there is a sword that is being had and it's a political sword. And then Jesus says, but I might have to come to you with my sword, the word of my sword. And we might say that a religious component, a spiritual component. And what we're beginning to see happen in the church of Pergamum is that that politics and religion began to kind of mesh together for the first time in ancient history. Now, the ancient city of Pergamum was, was, a, was a huge poppin' place. Uh, one scholar said it was the most famous place in all of ancient Asia because it was the home of many Greek and Roman gods. Zeus, Dionysus, uh, Athena. So much so, they had what was called an Acropolis. A thousand feet above the city was this entire area where all of these temples came. And so if you wanted to worship anything, if you wanted to go after anything in life, you went up to this temple area. And the way in which you would worship is you would bring food. Because feasts would be held, you would engage in a meal, and then what would follow with that was oftentimes drunkenness and orgies as a way to worship these gods. But you notice how Jesus refers to the city of Pergamum. He calls it the throne of Satan. Probably not the definition you want if you're running a city, am I right? Satan may have visited Ephesus. He may have worked his way through Smyrna. But Jesus says he lives in Pergamum. He reigns there. His throne, he has set up shop there in Pergamum. Because for the first time in ancient history, the Roman Empire did something they had never done before. They erected a temple, not just to these false and fake gods, but to Caesar himself. And so the ancient city of Pergamum was the first time in which they took the sword of political power and the sword of spirituality and mixed it together and say, guess what? We now offer you the best of both worlds. You don't have to pick and choose. Here is Caesar. Come to Caesar, worship Caesar, have have feasts and drunkenness and orgies all in the name of Caesar at Caesar's place of worship. And so when Jesus says, don't eat from the food of sacrificed idols, Jesus isn't saying, hey, their diet isn't the best. He's not saying, you know, they go, they eat like a box of Twinkies a day. That's probably not good for your health. Because a table fellowship, 
What it meant to commune, to eat with someone, was to associate with their way of life. Basically, Jesus is saying, if you eat with them, there's a good chance you're going to fall into everything else that they are doing with their worship. Now, the church in Pergamon gets a great start to their review, right? You remain in me. You remain in my word. Even though you saw Antipas, one of the own from your church, lose his life, and yet you still remained faithful to me. It harkens to John chapter 15 when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, I will remain in you. Some translations use the word abide. And we need to keep in mind, though, that the ability to remain in Christ, with Christ, in the presence of Jesus is never us. Your ability as a follower of Jesus, if you choose to follow Christ with your life, your ability to remain with Christ is not up to you. You don't have the strength. You don't have the fortitude. But the power of the Holy Spirit living in you has the ability to help you remain. And we remain by trying to decide who is the object of our faith. We remain because Jesus is the author, the perfecter of our faith. It's about Jesus, not about us. They've got a great start to the review. And then verse 14 comes. It's like one of those swift right-handed hooks that you just did not see coming. Because if Satan cannot stop a church, he will try and join it. If Satan can't get them to stop their worship or distort their worship, then he's going to pull out all the stops and then I've got to make my way in because the last thing that he wants is for God's name to be glorified, for the people of God to be obedient to the way of Christ, for the kingdom of God to expand. And so Satan tries to join this church. But it's interesting in this letter, I don't know if you, you picked up on it, who is it addressed to? It's not a trick question. The church. The church in Pergamum. It's not addressed to the city. How dare you, city of Pergamum, worship false gods? How dare, who do you think you are? Where are you getting off? No, no, it says to you, the Christians living in Pergamum, you repent. You see, it's foolish for Christians to believe that non-Christians should act like Christians. We fall into this trap and it happens, but that's foolishness. However, it's very appropriate for Christians to expect Christians to act like Christians. Jesus said you will be able to judge a tree by its fruit. Even Jesus talked about this all the time. Jesus, when he was going around and teaching and performing miracles and everything, he never was attacking culture directly. He was never going directly after the ways of the world, but who would he often call out? Those inside the body of Christ, the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites. And so something is happening in this church of Pergamum to where things are starting to blend together, that the ways of the world around them are starting to divert and dist uh, to distort their worship. I love the way that Pastor H.B. Charles, he puts it on this. He says, do not allow your circumstances the ability to govern your devotion to Christ. Don't allow the world around you, the culture, the influences, everything outside to govern your devotion to Christ. You remain based on Jesus and Jesus alone. You don't get to say, well, culture made me do it. You don't get to say, well, the world, if it wasn't so bad, then probably I would not have gone down that road and done that thing that I know I should. No, 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 no. Do not allow your circumstances the ability to govern your devotion to Christ. 
See, part of the worship of Pergamum, they were trying to say, we want our cake and we want to eat it too. We want to do whatever, with whomever, whenever we want, and God still bless the direction of our lives. We want to have our cake and eat it too. And Jesus says, hold up. It doesn't work that way. And so he references this prophet by the name of Balaam. Balaam, if you go to Old Testament, Numbers chapter 23, 24, 25, I believe it is. Here's how the story, there was this ancient King Balak. He was the king of the Moabite people. At that time, they were the enemies of the ancient Israelite God's chosen people. And they're having a hard time taking ground. They can't win the wars because God keeps showing up to protect his people. Who would have thought? And so he's like, okay, I got to devise a plan that's a little bit different. And so he's like, aha, maybe I can get one of their prophets to kind of come to my side. So he slips him a few 50s under the table and he says, hey, by the way, when you come, instead of um, just, just, you know, like making like blessings and stuff, why don't you just offer like a curse to the Israelite people? And he's like, throwing a donkey and you got a deal. Actually, I don't know. <laughs> and so he comes, God sees it, snuffs it out, puts a stop to it, makes Balaam actually give a blessing instead of a curse, but then Balaam and then again reverts course. And he convinces the Israelite people to defect from God. Yeah, 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 I know God said to protect your heart, protect your way of life, but go ahead and marry those women. Go ahead and worship and fornicate with their false gods. It's okay, I'm a man of God, you can believe me, you can trust me. Yeah, go ahead and eat with them. Go ahead and commune with them. Go ahead and associate your way of life with them. Essentially, Balaam convinced Israel that you can go ahead and have God in one hand, and hold on to the world in the other hand. And this is what's happening in the church of Pergamum. Balaam, the Nicolaitans, they were saying, give into your sensuality, give into your culture. Go to those temples, take part in the feast and the drunkenness and the orgies and the world around you, and you can still have God too. Doesn't that sound like a great deal? It begs the question for me in my mind is, why is false teaching like this so effective? whether it's Balaam, Nicolaitans, false teaching in some of our, our, our churches today that makes its way out there. One word. One word. That word is compromise. Compromise is seductive. Is it not? That belief that you can have it your way. Burger King. That's why false teaching like this is so dangerous. Because compromise is seductive. Yeah, go ahead, follow God. But also, you can go ahead and do those things too. Sin is fun. That's why we struggle with it. Filling those fleshly desires, doing it your way, not God's way. I mean, it's kind of a reason we have a sin problem in the first place. It's fun, it feels good, it's quickly justified. Just imagine, okay, let's just say the Bible said, hey, it's a sin to submerge your hand into a bucket of ice water for 25 minutes. I'm going to guess none of us are going to have that type of problem with sin because it hurts. It's not fun. Now, that's not a sin. That's just plain dumb, okay? But that's what the church in Pergamon was dealing with, the saying, we want it both ways. We want what culture has to offer, tickles our fancies, but we also kind of want God at the same time too. Balaam represents this false teaching, especially the false teaching of compromise, whereas Scripture the sword of the word of God clearly teaches us you can have God 
or you can have culture. The choice is yours. So if you ever find a pastor, a teacher, a Bible scholar who, who's painting this picture that you can, you can follow God but have a closer walk with the ways of the world, you run from them. That's not to say we can't have relationships. That's not to say we can't exist in the world. That's not to say that there aren't certain influences that, that we can glean from or redeem and bring into our life. But more often than not, if anyone ever teaches you from the Bible, yeah, go ahead and compromise on your faith. Go ahead and compromise on truth and you can still walk with God. You run from that person teaching the Bible. And so just as Israel was influenced to fornicate, the same compromise was in full force in Pergamum, and I'm afraid it sometimes makes its way into some churches today. But a compromise is always a compromise, no matter if it's an if, an and, or a but. But Jesus makes no compromise. To seek compromise is to reject Christ. You ever find yourself making compromises? I know I do. I'll give you a, a couple quick examples. If you have kids and you want to raise them in the way of the Lord, every choice and decision you make, do you compromise? Do you stand firm in your discipline sometimes and then kind of give in? Right? I don't know if your kids pull the whole, they go to mom, mom says no, they come to dad, and dad says yes because I'm trying to get them on my side. No, I'm just kidding, I don't do that. But it happens, right? God says you need to tithe. You need to be a cheerful giver. And sometimes we compromise saying, yeah, but that's only for people who make over $100,000. Well, that's for people who've had a good year. Well, that's for people who kind of, you know, that, that, that's then, this is now, this is a different time, different way. Inflation wasn't a thing back then, whatever. We make compromises. I think the greatest compromise we sometimes make is what does it actually look like to follow Jesus? Jesus says, by grace, through faith. Repent of your sin, believe in me, follow me with your life. And we say, but Jesus, do you actually mean everything? Yeah, everything. Okay, but like when you say everything, you mean like 90% of the things? No, 100%. Okay, but like when you say like 100%, there's some like wiggle room in there. There's some gray area that we can kind of bounce back and forth. Like if I've been a good little Christian boy or girl, I get a little bit extra leeway. No, everything. But like my works mean something too. Like aren't you glad, Jesus, that I'm on your team? You see how often I've been at church? Oh, yeah. I get a little pass here because of all the stuff I did for you in the past. No, 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 no. There is no compromise. The first church, the church in Ephesus, had an overemphasis. Oh, that was good. On doctrine. They loved the Bible, the word of God so much, but they didn't love people. And Jesus said, that's bad. Pergamum was almost the exact opposite. You love culture way too much. So much so that you're not following me. And this is the stark truth in reality. It's that you can't conform to both Christ and culture in your life. If there's any of the seven letters of Revelation that we're going to look at, we're going to study, it's this one that I think is most appropriate to us. I think this is the one that's going to hit us in the face if we are listening, if we're doing what chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy and listens. This is the one. You cannot conform to both Christ and culture. You can't do it. You can't. 
Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, after... Because you have transformed your mind, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The pattern of the world is full of compromise. I don't have to convince you of this. You know it all too well. Whether that's in one's purpose, whether that's in sexuality, whether that's on what is true and on down the line, compromise is everywhere. Well, you can believe what you want to believe, but don't force it on me. That's compromise. That's compromise. Now, the word conform means to become like. It's kind of like a, like a chameleon, the way a chameleon adjusts to its surroundings. I like to think of it as like a, every high school drama movie ever created. Let me give you a few examples. Who in here has seen Mean Girls? Okay, yep, dope movie, okay. Now, the Lindsay Lohan character, I don't remember her name. Somebody shout it out for me if you know it. Sorry, I didn't get that. Okay, Lindsay Lohan, 80. Katie, Katie, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, gold stars in heaven for that one. Okay. And so Katie, right, she comes, she comes like she's from a different country, um, and then she's like a math nerd. Yeah, okay, cool. All right, I've got like, okay, I'm just going to talk to you because you know what's up, right? Okay, so she's like a math nerd, right? And, and, and so and, and you, so you know how it goes. She, she's super into it, and then all of a sudden, though, she meets this friend. He's like, but you, you kind of look pretty, so here, we're going to get you in with the plastics. The girls are like, we only wear pink on Mondays. You can't sit here because you're not, you know, right? And it's how it starts. And it starts off, and she's like, that's a great idea. I'm going to be a spy. I'm going to be inside man. I'm going to find that burn book, and we're going to completely out Regina Jordan. It's going to be awesome. But as the movie goes on, what happens? She slowly becomes conformed to the plastics. She too starts to wear pink. Ooh, I look kind of good in this pink. And she goes on. And then the end of the movie, finally there's this revelation. Oh wait, I need to be who I am. I don't need to try to be what everyone else wants me to be or thinks I need to be. Different movie. How many of you guys seen Grease? Okay. The whole concept of the movie. Danny, Sandra D. Fall in love on the beach, the wind is blowing, salt water's in the air, and then all of a sudden she shows up first day of school and he's got the leather jacket on. He's friends with Kanicki, who I just thought was like the coolest guy ever, right? And the whole movie is them trying to figure out who am I? Who do I look like? What do I conform to? And at the end, they drive in a car off literally into the sun. <laughs> Don't conform to the patterns of this world. The world will try to convince you. You can have your cake and eat it too. Do not compromise, Jesus says. Do not be conformed. Do not try to have your cake and eat it too. That's because God's love is just different. God's love does not operate that way. There's a fullness and incomparable glory, but it's because God's love denies compromise. It does. Let me prove it to you. There is one way, one truth, one life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not there's multiple ways. It's not there's a few different truths. 
It's not, well, you know, there's a couple different ways you can live to be obedient to me. No, one way, one truth, one life. No one comes to the Father except to me. It is a narrow road. There is one way into the family of God. Repent of your sin. Believe that Jesus Christ died and saved you by grace through faith. And we know that compromise is a slippery slope. And we try to say, but can't we have it both ways, God? Can't, 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 please? Can, can we please just do what they do for a little bit? For just a little bit? Christianity is the only religion. Philosophy is the only worldview, way of life that says this is the bar. This is the standard you're called to. And bad news, you can't get to there. But Jesus will. If you die to yourself, if you humble yourself, I will lift you to that bar and I will hold you there if you remain in me, if you remain in my love, Jesus says. You cannot take the old self with you. You cannot put new wine in an old wine sense. If you deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and refuse to compromise, if you will become exclusive with me, I will fulfill that, give you life to the fullest, but the choice is yours. You can't take culture with you. You cannot tweak my truth. You cannot believe you hold the sword. Only I do. It's because Jesus doesn't want that. And he doesn't want it for us either. But if you die to yourself, he will gladly take all of you and give you a new life. And the offer, the solution that Jesus gives is simple. He says, repent. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This word repent means just to come back. Just come on back. It's not a shame-filled word. It's a word of love, it's a serious word, but it's also a word of grace and mercy. You need to repent, come on back. What do we repent of? Repent of compromise, come back to remaining in me. Know my voice, hear my voice, follow my voice. Psalm 23, the most famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters and green pastures. If you go to Israel, what you would notice, it's full of hills and valleys. In order for sheep to be safe, in order for sheep to be secure, in order for sheep to survive, in the mornings, dew and fog oftentimes covered the land. And they would have to know and recognize the voice of their shepherd. That when the fog, when the confusion, when the distortion rolls in, they had to be able to know, oh, that's my Lord. That is my shepherd. That is where he is calling me. I must follow him. Let me give you a different example. This week, uh, we, we, this past week, we woke up, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, to the power being out in our house. Now, our kids are super bougie, okay? They've got, like, their theme nightlights, and they've got, like, those sound machines, and they can't sleep without them. They get this from their mother. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and so, but, so we, but it was about like 6 a.m., power went out. And you know when the power goes out and makes that like ominous, like, doo, 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 right? It's just like, oh, it's quiet. It's dark. Like nothing is making a noise. It's kind of creepy. And our kids, both of them, they wake up like simultaneously and start screaming, right? Because they have no idea what's going on. The noise stopped. The lights are out. They're completely distorted. And they're freaking out. Now, when I wake up, my voice is like super raspy and I sound like even more manly than I normally do on a regular basis. I walk into my daughter's room, it's like, Avery. And she's like, oh, what is this? Who is this creeper? Get away from me. But my wife gets up, walks into my daughter's room, and just says, hey, Avery, 
in an instant. That's my mom. She is here. Even though my surroundings, even though my culture has been distorted, I have heard the voice of the one who I know loves me. I have heard the voice of the one who calls me to a way of love. If we are not remaining, we will find ourselves in a place to repent. But if we remain, if we repent, Jesus says here he offers two things. Number one, you receive this hidden manna. It's a reference to when the Israelites, 40 years of wandering after the oppression of Egypt, they received bread from heaven every single day, not a day before or not a day after. It was the bread of life. Jesus says, I will offer you myself. But then he says, I will give you the white stone with a new name written on it. And let me show you why this is important. And this is where I wrap up my time with you this morning. In ancient antiquity, the judges and sometimes the rabbis, I've gotten two larger rocks for the sake of illustration, sometimes carried around, sometimes they were on a sash, sometimes they were in pockets, but there would be a black rock, a dark rock, that represented the ability to govern a guilty verdict. And they would also then hold a white rock, which represented the ability to govern a personal decree of acquittal. And so Jesus says, if you repent, if you remain in me, I will give you the white rock, the white of freedom, the white rock of liberty. You will not be considered guilty, but he adds something. He doesn't just say, I will give you freedom from the bondage, the oppression. He says, I will write a name on it. Here's the truth. Your name is written here. Just being honest. Every single one of our names is written on the black rock. Eric, guilty. Eric, sinner. Eric, not worthy. But the white rock, the new name, the acquittal, the debt has been paid as the name of Jesus, the name of his love the name of his mercy, the name that says you are redeemed, you are rescued, you are empowered by my spirit. Because here's the beauty in this. To take someone's name with you meant, oh, it's just a name. No, no, no. When you took their name with you, their presence and their power went with you. So when Jesus says, I have given you a new name written down on glory, it is the name of redeemed. It is not the name of Eric. It is not the name of Sally. It is not the name of Steve. It is the name of Jesus Christ. If you refuse to compromise, if you repent, remain in me. My presence, my power, my glory, my way of life goes with you. This is the name we worship. This is what we are striving after. This is what we have been given by the glorious work of Jesus Christ. A new name on a white rock written down for all eternity for the glory of God. And I want to tell you, this is your name too. That this name is you as well. That this name is gone because Jesus says, I have given you my name because of my love, because of my grace, because of my will for your life. I invite you to stand with us this morning and we're continue to worship. And as you worship, worship that truth. Worship the truth that your name is written down in glory. That you take with you the presence and the power of Jesus Christ.